All right, welcome to Veterans for Responsible Leadership podcast. I'm Jason Belcher. I'm an Iraq veteran and currently museum director, just started a new job. And this week we're going to be talking with the president and founder of VFRL, Dr. Dan Barkoff, who is a former Navy SEAL and currently an emergency room physician. Do I have that right? That is correct, sir. All right, well, glad to be talking with you today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Uh, this, will be, this will be fun. We'll get a little uh, update about what's, uh, what's going on in this cycle. Exactly. So we wanted to focus a little bit on the uh, elections and what's happening here domestically with the, uh, you know, we're inside the 60-day window for the national election, so things always start to really heat up during that time period. Yep, yep exactly. And, uh, you know, the, the, you know, we're starting, to, we're well into September, and over the next, you know, six weeks, you're really going to see kind of the, uh, uh, both sides sort of pushing their message, um, you know, looking for, to, to get any little bit of traction, but the, uh, the national landscape since we last chatted is, uh, has really, uh, changed in a lot of ways, um, you know, with the, uh, with the overturn of Roe, and, uh, with uh, some of the traction that the 1-6 committee got, um, things are looking better for kind of the anti-authoritarian forces in this election than uh, they were, you know, even three or four months ago. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, really, how much can happen in just such a short period of time. And I, I guess that's just the nature of the uh, political game. You think every, everybody thinks they've got their message you know, on track and they've got their campaign running smoothly. And then all of a sudden things like that come up right in the middle of the campaign and just throws everything uh, into a, a different uh, arena. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, it's it's. The, uh, the temperament, the uh, attention span, so to speak, of, of your, uh, you know, the voting public is, um, well, I wouldn't use the word fickle, um, but, you know, the, things have changed. I mean, when we were first kind of looking at this cycle, uh, you know, back in February, um, a big dividing point was uh, support for Ukraine. And, um, you know, if you recall, initially back in, in February 24th, 25th, um, you know, you had Trump going on, you know, talking to donors and, and sort of saying that, you know, Putin's doing a great job. This is a smart move on his behalf. He's going to, you know, walk right over these people. Um, and, you know, there was, there was a little bit of controversy, and it's, it's largely sort of gone away. And, you know, it's one of the few um, really unifying. I mean, there's kind of holdouts on the far left and, and the far right who are anti-Ukraine aid, but for the most part, the, the, the mass in the middle, uh, the middle part of that bell curve has really embraced uh, American support of Ukraine. Um, and so, you know, we thought that that was going to be a big issue. And then, you know, lo and behold, the Supreme Court overturns uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, you've got the 1-6 committee hearings all spring long. Um, and now people are, uh, you know, depending on which side of the aisle you're polling on and in the district, um, you know, people are listening to Roe and, and defense of democracy as their kind of number one and number two issues. Um, so the generic ballot has really, uh, according to some of the things I've seen, has, has really narrowed uh, from, you know, plus eight Republican, which is pretty typical for a midterm, to, uh, uh, you know, neck and neck. So still a lot of work to do, but um, the... Uh, it looks like a better cycle than anticipated, certainly, for the uh, the anti-authoritarian forces. Yeah, you know, I'm a historian, so typically the pattern that we see um, in midterm elections, and especially off-cycle, so that means when there's not a presidential election, it's, it's, a, yep. it's a recognizable pattern across American history that the, the party in power in the White House tends to lose ground 
uh, during the midterms in an off cycle. And, that, and that's not just because so, some people say, well, that's just because there's an unpopular president. Well, it's happened to some of the most popular presidents we've ever had, too. And I'll give you an example from both parties. You know, Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan happened to both of them. Um, so uh -huh. it's, it's just something that we see happening. But I think the, the, uh, the issues that you raised, especially Roe, has altered that dynamic a little bit. Um, at least it appears to be so far. It really has, and there were some surprises with Roe, too, right? Like, so, you know, Roe gets overturned, and in many red states, there were these tri these trigger laws, you know? So um, they had laws on the books in, uh, you know, places like uh, Texas and Mississippi with where, uh, you know, if Roe v. Wade was overturned, you know, essentially that day, a new law, you know, was kind of, was kind of passed uh, immediately. So they had these trigger laws to ban abortion at the state level. Um, and so, you know, that's where, you know, and, and almost immediately you started hearing these horror stories, uh, you know, a 10-year-old um, in Ohio who's a victim of a sexual assault who, uh, um, you know, was unable to obtain an abortion, uh, you know, in a timely fashion, had to end up uh, traveling to another state, and there was, you know, uh, controversy as to as to how true that was. Um, you know, you've got uh, you've got doctors. Um, you know, I'm not a, I'm an emergency room doctor in a in a very blue state, but you've got doctors in in some of these red states saying, you know. Uh, you know, talking to risk management at the hospital about, you know, can we safely, uh, you know, terminate this uh, ectopic pregnancy? Um, are we allowed to do that? Uh, what are we allowed to do? And there's there's sort of a lot of confusion, really, on behalf of the medical establishment. But the electorate has not, um, you know, they've not not notice that right like so you know the the, the single-handed you know biggest thing has been uh the overturn of, of roe v wade um and you've got these surprises you've got like the the kansas referendum right in which uh kansas probably the you know in the running for the reddest of the red states uh had a referendum and uh and voted to protect abortion rights so um you've seen some of these candidates now start to back out, back away, and sort of soft-pedal these, um, their abortion stands. Uh, you know, Blake Masters in Arizona um, took all his, uh, his pro-life, um, you know, no exceptions for rape and incest uh, positions kind of down off his website and, and is trying to, you know, modify that. But I think the, uh, the general public, you know, has the receipts. And this is an this is an issue that affects uh, folks that are in the military too, right? I mean, so if there are military service members that are seeking to get that to have an abortion, I mean, it's it's affected them too, depending on which state that they're based in, right? Absolutely, and it's a it's a it's an issue that um, as of yet hasn't gotten a lot of attention. But <coughs> so you know the uh, many of our largest military institutions are in, uh, you know, some of these red states, um, you know, military institutions like, uh, you know, uh, Fort Hood down in Texas, or, uh, you know, some of the, some of the Florida, um, uh, you know, Florida's a huge military state. You've got naval bases in Jacksonville, you've got Key West, um, you've got stuff on the Tampa side with, uh, with Hurlburg Field, you've got Pensacola, you know, all these sorts of places. Uh, Benning in Georgia, Bragg in North Carolina. You know, they're they're the big, large bases are, uh, especially kind of Army and Air Force are generally in red states, and so you now you've taken a right away from, um, you know, a, a, a group of service 
women, uh, a, group, a group of service members who um, could get healthcare that they needed and um, and are now no longer, una- you know, they're now unable to obtain that healthcare. Um, and they're, you know, it, it, if you're at, uh, at Fort Hood in Texas, um, you know, where are you going to travel to? How are you going to, you know, where are you going to go, right? You're surrounded by, you know, Louisiana, Oklahoma, you know, these people are going to have to travel all the way to New Mexico, um, you know, to, to get some of the health care that they, that they need. So it's it's an issue that as of yet, I don't think we have cases of it affecting readiness, but um, it, could, it certainly has the potential to affect readiness. You know, in this, uh, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. In the civilian sector, there have been private companies that have offered to pay for travel for employees who wanted to get abortion if they wanted to go to another state. I guess the military could could just do TDY, right? I mean, we could just send you TDY for that uh, if that's feasible medically. Um, you could just go TDY to a different base and have it done there if it's if it's conflicts with the local state law. I, I don't know that that's actually happened, but it could. Yeah, in, in theory, sure. And, I mean, the... Uh um, you know, the VA is, the VA, which, you know, for, for folks who are listening who may be unfamiliar with, the, the, uh, the Veterans Administration is not the same as the military. The VA is kind of its own separate mandate, and they take care of veterans, not in general active duty, uh, you know, servicemen and women. But the VA has said that they would uh, provide abortions to, um, you know, folks coming in. Um, you know, I'm a... Um, I'm impressed that the VA, you know, sort of publicly took that stand. I think that, um, you know, to, to do so uh, required a little bit of, uh, of moral courage on, on their behalf. So um, it is the type of thing that uh, is going to continue to, you know, anytime there's a big decision like this, we're we're only in the in the first little bit of seeing how this is actually going to affect people, right? You know, it's. It's, it's going to take time for us to see how it affects veterans, how it affects the military, uh, you know, in these kind of like large government institutions. We already know it affects, um, you know, private citizens in the United States. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of unprecedented times. And, and like I said, that, you know, the polling we've done in the districts we're interested in, that's the number one issue by far. And you also mentioned earlier the impact of the 1-6 hearings, which have continued, or, or, or they were, earlier on, and uh, they received a pretty decent amount of viewership across the country. And I think amongst people who did who did watch those, even if it was just a portion, I think it did have an impact on the way they think about um, the events of 1-6, and, and, and that will probably shape their views going forward this year as well. Absolutely. So 1-6, you know, um, it's a little funny, man, because, you know, before the one six committee, committee hearings started, right? The um, there was this sort of uh, you know the Republican Party line was you know this is a waste of time. No one's going to watch this. Um, you know they, they were trying to to downplay it from the get go, right? And um, you know if you if you recall back when they were setting it up, um, you know the Kevin McCarthy had refused to have some certain, uh, uh, you know, Republican lawmakers on the committee. And as a result, the, you know, the Republican lawmakers that they got were, you know, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And the hearings have been extremely well done. They have shown, you know, their, their mission as they see it is to show what really happened that day and to show that 
uh, you know, this was an unprecedented, organized conspiracy to to stop the you know the lawful transfer of power. This was not uh, a bunch of people who were um, you know sort of uh, you know got a little too rowdy at, at a tailgate, right? Like this was an actual attempt to delay uh, the transfer of power. And one of the things that the one six committee has done masterfully is all of their witnesses are Republican, right? And, and, That's right. and their witnesses are all MAGA Republicans. You know, these are guys, these are guys, you know, Rusty Bowers, right? These are not, uh, you know, bleeding hard liberals. Uh, you know, you, you can't say that this is, um, you know, that this is, is based on uh, bullshit, frankly, because it's not. These are people who were there, who were in the rooms, who saw what was happening, and you know they're the ones who are you know telling exactly what happened that day, and they're they're remaining true to their oaths uh, at, at great personal risk, you know. Um, so I think it's uh, it's really had an effect that people didn't anticipate. Um, but you know, I saw one poll the other day where uh, you know sixty five percent of Americans view you know democracy as under a serious threat, and so. That was not the case prior to the one six committee hearings. They've really, uh, you know, changed uh, changed people's perspective. And in again, in the districts we've pulled in, it's like row number one, one six number two. Um, you know, the economy's in there as well, of course. And uh, even that has kind of taken a turn somewhat for the better. Yeah, you mentioned, um, and, and I meant to, to uh, draw more attention to this earlier, when you said um, anti-authoritarian forces, I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on what you meant by that, because it's, it's very relevant to what the 1-6 hearing was all about. Yeah, it, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, it's we've moved beyond, I think, um, to any objective observer, you know, we've moved beyond Republicans versus Democrats. Um, you know, there's a slice of uh, the Republican Party um, that is not just okay with authoritarianism, but is is explicitly seeking it. And you know, it, it isn't all Republicans, right? Like that's that would be a lie to say that it's all Republicans, but it is the Republicans in, in power within within that party. Um, you know, every time you know you think Donald Trump's going to go away, uh, he doesn't. You know, he's he's like a cat. You know, he's got his nine lives and. Uh, you know, every scandal, you're like, this is going to be the one that's, you know, they're going to do it. There's no way people stick with a, a president who uh, stole top secret documents from the White House and just had him in his office at a resort. Um, and people have, uh, you know, stuck by him in, in a way that is really kind of unrecognizable to me as an American. It just baffles me. But, um, you know, enough of the Republican Party has stuck by him that if you want to be an elected official in the Republican Party, you have to kiss the ring. Um, as maybe some of the listeners know, I was very uh, vocally uh, against one Senate candidate in Missouri, a guy named Eric Greitens, who um, I briefly met when he was in the SEAL teams years ago. And, uh, you know, a true charlatan, a true, like, dangerous person, brilliant guy, very smart, and... Um, was completely willing to, to uh, you know, to pretend to uh, believe the big lie and espouse the big lie and to do whatever it took 
to get Donald Trump's endorsement so he could be elected as, as a senator. And um, people like that have uh, have really kind of overtaken uh, the leadership positions in the Republican Party. I mean, you can't you can't look around and see a Republican in leadership who is putting the country first. I, I firmly believe that. I mean, Mitch McConnell um, has not. Uh, Kevin McCarthy certainly has not. Elise Stefanik has not. These are these are people who are letting this authoritarian movements. Uh, you know, everyone wants to ride the tiger and, and see if it is going to take them where they want to go. Yeah, and you mentioned the uh, kiss the ring, which is, you know, seeking the approval of the authority figure. In the New Hampshire case, I think there was a, a Republican candidate, though, that actually changed his stance on that a little bit uh, recently by saying that he now believes that the 2020 election was not stolen. Did you, have you heard of that, or did you, did you see that? Yes, so that guy, so that's John Bolduck, right? So, yep. and, and Bolduck was a former Army officer, so, you know, he knows better. This is, this is a, you know, a garbage... Uh, position and he's trying to you know sort of tack back towards the middle because he knows he's going to lose most likely if he keeps espousing this kind of hard right stuff. But he's a guy who also, um, you know, amongst other amongst other things, uh, you know, said that the COVID the COVID vaccines were microchips. Um, you know, he is a guy who uh, you know frankly does not have the best reputation uh, you know with his military service and his. Um, you know, his coming home to New Hampshire and running as this hard ultra right conservative um, who's espousing let's let's be clear, this is QAnon stuff, right? Like this is this is Q stuff, right? That the vaccine has a microchip in it. Like what what planet are we on where a candidate for the United States Senate Senate uh, you know can say that and not immediately um, you know lose his election? I mean it's it's insane that like that's a it's insane to me that that's a legitimate position in the Republican Party. It is. It's, it is. And, you know, the fact, I mean, from a medical perspective, and I'm sure you know this as a physician, uh, I'm on the State Board of Pharmacy here in Kentucky. You know, the vaccine itself is out of your body in 72 hours. Um, so the, the, the claims that are made about it, that it's going to do all these things, it's just, um, it's just hard, to, it's hard to believe that anyone would take them seriously. Absolutely. Are you still there? Yeah. Yes, sorry about that. Oh, go ahead. And, uh, you know, the, I mean, the, the vaccine stuff is, um, you know, it's rooted in conspiracy theories that have been, you know, debunked um, from early 2000s, right? Like, but, it, but it's all sort of this same kind of thread of conspiracy theories. Um, you know, there was this study. Uh, in the Lancet, uh, which is a British medical journal, um, back in oh man, I think it was like the late nineties, um, early two thousands, um, and you know the guy who the guy who published it, um, a, a gentleman by the name of Wakefield, um, his theory was that getting the measles vaccine was linked to autism, and when he said that, it kind of spawned all these, you know, the anti-vax movement predates Trump, right? Like, the anti-vax movement's been around for a while, and, um, you know, one of the safest, most established vaccines, the MMR vaccine, was, uh, you know, it was retracted by the Lancet. They found that, um, you know, they had these, uh, 
non-existent sort of causative links between, um, you know, the vaccine and, and autism. And it really, you know, if you think of it in terms of people not getting the COVID vaccine, and it's, it literally, you know, um, ended up causing excess deaths to the, to the tune of hundreds of thousands of Americans and, and probably millions worldwide. Um, you know, and, and so this, this anti-vaccine movement, I mean, I'm sure everybody listening knows an anti-vaxxer or two, um, you know, and, and we have, we have, you know, not even the COVID stuff. I mean, we're having outbreaks in New York state of polio, like, you know, polio was, uh, eliminated as a health problem. Uh, once Jonas Salk essentially, you know, developed his vaccine and people widespread took it, you know, um, and now it's, there, there are outbreaks amongst children whose parents are anti-vaxxers, um, in New York state. And it's, it's, it's just, uh, it's, all a different side of that same coin of conspiracy theories and uh you know the internet in general i think has made it worse no it, it has and you know it's interesting you say that because it's a it, it allows a nice segue into the you know just the idea of a fact-free belief system whereas if you don't have to have any any facts and you can just believe anything um and i wanted to briefly mention the the situation in, in ukraine because if you if you listen to some of the Russian news sources, um, depending on where you are, uh, things are better than ever. Uh, even though they've been suffering setbacks, you know the the opposite side has really ratcheted up the rhetoric there, and so folks continue to believe that in spite, in, you know, in the face of all real <laughs> evidence to the contrary. Uh, so it's not a uniquely right. American situation; it's it's worldwide. Yeah, exactly, and you know, it reminds me of. Uh this is not a perfect analogy, but, you know, have you ever heard that sort of apocryphal story of, um, you know, two people are, you know, out in the woods and they see a bear and it's like, uh, you know, the bear wants to eat them and it's like, well, I don't have to run faster than the bear, I just have to run faster than you, you know? <laughs> exactly. So it's like, it's, it's like a similar sort of take. It's like, you know, yeah, you don't, you don't, you know, you just, you can say, you don't have to prove that what you're saying is correct. You don't have to prove the election was stolen. You just have to kind of, you know, cause enough doubt that people don't know what to believe. And, um, you know, say what you will about MAGA, but I think they've been very, very successful in, in creating doubt. I mean, if you look at, you know, Gallup polls about um, sort of sectors of American life that uh, people have confidence in, you know, even the military, um, you know, it has decreased, you know, and that used to be, you know, Desert Storm One, like you know, ninety-five percent of Americans had like great faith in, in the military, right? And, and uh, you know, physicians and, and police and schools and all these things. Nobody trusts anyone anymore, and um, and there are forces that you know see that as a positive and are trying very hard to capitalize on that. Yeah, it's the uh, it's not just the weaponization of misinformation; it's the monetization of misinformation. Because you can make a lot of money uh, just telling folks what they want to hear, or, or telling outlandish tales, and, and sell it in a book, and uh, you'll be well rewarded from a financial standpoint. Absolutely. So you know, there was one. This was a snippet in the news, and and don't take this for uh, for gospel because I I don't remember the exact numbers, but you know there was a snippet on on the news in that the Alex Jones uh, defamation case over at Sandy Hook, and um, you know it, it came out you know he was making more money after he was sort of deplatformed by YouTube 
um, it, you know, trying to trying to get uh, people to realize what a kooky was was actually backfiring, and it just really says something about human psychology that um, you know if you if you if you deplatform someone and and you know the same is probably to be said for Trump, right? Like you know they they kicked Trump off Twitter, um, which was great and and long overdue, but you know now people just post you know screenshots of what what he's saying on his uh, truth social or whatever yeah I had not seen that actually but um, it doesn't surprise me yeah Alex Jones I believe made more uh, and he was making you know insane insane you know he was making a million dollars a day wow uh, you know when when he was deplatformed I'm going to google it here Alex Jones Infowars you know um but it was, you know, it was, he, yeah, I mean, so the New York Times has an article, um, you know, kind of talking about it and about his finances and, uh, you know, um, he was making, you know, he's worth, Infowars made more than $800,000 a day in 2018. Wow. Um, you know, that's just crazy. And it's, for what, you know, he's, you could, uh, you know, you could take a, a, a 10 year old child and have him listen to it and you know hey do you think that this person is sort of telling the truth I mean he's an unhinged lunatic and it's it's amazing how much money there is in that. yeah you're, you're absolutely right some of them are more smooth in their delivery though uh, and, and sound a little bit less hysterical um, than he did and I'll give you an example you know Dinesh D'Souza has this 2,000 mules thing out there um, and and he's actually coming to my hometown here in a little bitty town in eastern Kentucky uh, in about three weeks and so I'm really curious to see what kind of reception that gets uh, because this is where I live uh, very much Trump country as far as uh, the electorate goes he, he won here handily uh, and both times he ran so um, it, it continues to be a draw uh, for folks to make money and to uh, to get attention for themselves, and I, I don't know what we can really do to to stop it because it's it's pure fiction. I mean, what they're peddling is none of it's true, but it continues to be embraced as though it were. Yeah, and it's it's not even. I mean, it's you know someone like Brad Raffensperger down in Georgia, right? The Georgia Secretary of State, who you know sort of refused to go along with Trump's attempts to you know find the eleven thousand votes or whatever it was. You know, he he's a MAGA Republican. Right. Like he, you know, it, it just shows you that, um, you know, if you're not going to listen to other MAGA Republicans, if, if, you're, if you're a, you know, a MAGA Republican, you're not going to listen to other MAGA Republicans. Um, you know, you you really are kind of in a cult. You know, if you only listen to Dear Leader and uh, anything counter to, you know, to the narrative, even other people in power who are like, hey, this is, you know, this is bullshit. We can't uh, continue down this road. I'm not willing to. Uh, disavow my oath and uh, just sort of allow you to, uh, you know, overturn an election on, on a win. Um, you know, who are you going to listen to? Right? Like that, you know, when I started VFRL, <laughs> excuse me, you know, one of the things that, you know, a basic assumption I had, you know, you're a military guy, you talk about assumptions, right? Like, you know, a, you know, let's examine our assumptions. And, one of the assumptions I had was that fellow veterans, uh, by and large, would would see things the way that I did, um, in the sense that you know they would see through this kind of charlatan uh, shtick that Trump does, and they would 
you know, sort of, you know, the way he conducts himself and the way he led the country is kind of incompatible with, with good leadership. I thought that would be sort of apparent to everyone immediately. And it was apparent to many people. It's certainly not apparent to everyone. I mean, there's plenty of, you know, ex-military, not a majority, by the way, the majority is, is on the side of democracy, but there's, there's plenty of, of ex-military who really are, um, you know, really are are drinking the Kool Aid along with with everyone else. So it's it's disheartening, um, you know, that people are willing to do that. But it, it's a fact that they do. No, and the one six attack itself proves that. Although I think as a percentage, um, it wasn't a very high percentage, but there still was a, a component of folks that were involved in that who were who were either uh, ex-military or, or affiliated. Um, and that just to me is is amazing. Um, because I, I agree with what you're saying, and you would think that, that all the training that we had, um, at some point, some of it would have sunk in, um, and, and that what we're defending, you have to look at those ideas and think about what they actually mean, and then apply that uh, when you're discharging your duties, not just as an active duty military person, but as a citizen. I mean, we all vote. Military members have different political views. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we serve together in a, in a nonpartisan way, but it, it seems that the, the basic boundaries of democracy is something that, as a military person, you would have a much greater respect for uh, by way of just our training and experience set. Absolutely. I mean, we took it, you know, it's right there in our oath, right? We took an oath to the Constitution and, um, you know, overthrowing, uh, you know, a, a session of Congress, right? I mean, that's, that's the literal definition of not being true to your oath to the Constitution, right? Like, and, and you're right, there were... I don't think it was a majority by any stretch, but you know there were uh, dozens to hundreds of uh, ex-military and, and certainly some active duty folks who were kind of high-profile arrests as well, um, based on the, on the one-six stuff. And, and you know you've got these radicalized, uh, you know, organizations. The you know the the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and to a lesser extent the Proud Boys. But you know the uh, you know these are specifically made up of veterans and you know they're they're kind of going around our country and uh, actively conspiring to you know make us a, a an authoritarian country that does not honor elections so um yeah it's it's interesting you know there are i would certainly say the majority of people um you know who came and, and helped vfrl and and uh you know, wanted to be a part of that, you know, we see things the same way, right? Like, and, you know, we see things as, uh, you know, there's a, there's a thing called honor, there's a thing called duty, there's a thing called truth, and all of that takes precedence over, you know, the pursuit of, of power for your group. Um, there have been plenty of elections that my side has lost, right? But, you know, like, there have been plenty of elections that I didn't like the outcome of. But that's part of being a small D Democrat is you have you're like well we'll find another day, right? And so just the the thought that some people are like no 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 we are not letting this one go is just kind of anathema to the to the way that you know I was 
raised and, and what, what was inculcated to me in the military. And that's why it's so important for organizations like VFRL who bring the collective power of a large number of, of similar thinking veterans to that same argument. And, and it's, it's critical when we talk about civic engagement and voting that part of that message has to be what you, what you mentioned just a moment, moment ago. There's going to be another election. You know, if you lose this one, it, it's not fun. Nobody says you have to like it. But, but you know, run again next time. There, we're always going to have another election. So it's none of them are permanent. That's the whole point of a democracy. Um, you have to get uh, reelected. And so you'll have another opportunity to do that. And um, that's a, a message that I hope is, uh, is resonating as we go through this election cycle and hopefully future ones, too, that you're going to have another, another shot. That's the great thing about democracy. Exactly. And, the, you know, the, the danger, right, like, you know, when we have kind of authoritarian movements that, you know, overtake a democracy, like what happened in Hungary, you know, everyone uses this example, but it's because it's such a good example is, you know, what happened to the, uh, the Weimar Republic and, and Nazi Germany, you know, authoritarians just need to win once, right? Like the Democrats, and by that I mean small D Democrats, the, the, the defenders of democracy, we need to win every time. And, the authoritarian movement, they just need to win once. And then when they, you know, they get into power, this is what happened with Mussolini, it's what happened with Franco, it's what happened with, uh, you know, Hitler. It, they, they use their time in power to dismantle democracy. And um, that's the danger. The danger is, um, you know, we have to be hyper vigilant about, you know, Secretary of State races in a place like Iowa or Michigan um, because, that's all it takes, right? Like we have to win the governorship in Pennsylvania because Doug Mastriano uh, is on tape saying, you know, if I win, it's twenty electoral votes for, uh, you know, for MAGA. You know, so he's he's planning on cheating already. I actually want to ask so, you about that. Um, yeah. Well, not not from a political perspective, but actually from a medical perspective, since the the other candidate there, Federman, had a stroke, and there's been questions raised about whether or not he's physically able to keep running. I just wondered if you had any medical input on that. Yeah, you know, I think I don't know the details of his uh, of his stroke. I mean, he certainly had speaking appearances um, since then. I, you know, some strokes are, are clearly like you know life changing and devastating, right? You know, some people become paralyzed on one side of their body and, and can't speak, um, and then there are other strokes that are you know pretty minor, and it's like, all right, we're starting you on a baby aspirin, and then you know you go home and go about your life, and that's all you need, and without knowing the kind of the details of Fetterman's case, it'd be, uh, I'd be, I'd be remiss to, to kind of weigh in on that. But I will say, um, you know, it, you know, even if you look at someone like, uh, you know, Biden, who, you know, he's, he's sort of famous for having this stutter and he went into a, a, a life in the public eye. Um, you know, if, if Fetterman's problem is sort of like, Know, sometimes he stumbles over words or, or what have you. I mean, to me as a voter, that doesn't matter at all, right? Like, what matters is, uh, you know, the content of his ideas and the content of his character. And so um, I can tell you, you know, he doesn't seem to have a um, – he doesn't seem to have an issue being back out on the campaign trail. Um, I know the Republicans have been making noise about how he needs to, to debate Dr. Oz. Um, and, you know, a lot of strokes do tend to get better over time um you know not all the way better but most stroke patients will make an improvement as in the weeks and months kind of after the incident so it's it's tough to say i mean i can tell you um 
I'll take a, a guy who had a small stroke and uh, wants to defend democracy over uh, a charlatan like Dr. Oz, who, you know, I, you know, I'm not making this up. I still get diet pill emails from him. Wow. Um, you know, it's, it's ongoing. Like the grift is ongoing. I don't know if I clicked on the wrong website, but somehow I get you know miracle diet pills from Dr. Oz, um, which is is such a I mean, you know, he's, he's supposed to be a physician, and he's, he's just trying to sell, you know, stuff for, there, you know, money and fame. Yeah, there have been videos out there, for not to get down, go down a rabbit hole on this, I didn't, yeah. mean, didn't mean to, but there have been videos of Vetterman out there that were edited to make it sound like he had a speech problem after the stroke. Uh, and sure. so they reinforced that point. But I, I already know his supporters, that, that just made them redouble their effort, like, well, now we're going to vote for him uh, twice as hard. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know... It, it, the broader question is like how much should the health of a candidate matter right and so that i think you know i think that could be you know an issue right and you know you hear these rumblings of maybe biden shouldn't run in 2024 and you know maybe he's too old i do think i will say this i do think in general um it's time for the next generation to step up um you know we're you know the 9-11 generation of which you and i are a part of yep. right like we're uh, you know, we're in our 40s now, we're in our 50s now. We don't need to be electing 86-year-olds for the United States Senate. Um, you know, so I, I, I do sort of, um, and there's this, uh, uh, you know, some of, the, some of the senator, I mean, Chuck Grassley's running, you know, Chuck Grassley is what, like, I don't remember how old he is, but he's, um, you know, way too old to be, <laughs> way too old to be in office. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's I just looked that up, it's 88 years old. Right, so he would be ninety-four. Yeah, um, you know, if you want someone on the other side, uh, you know, Diane Feinstein is is pretty elderly, and it, you know, has had some some difficulty. So it's kind of a legitimate question, you know, um, but I've not seen anything to suggest that you know Fetterman can't discharge the the duties of his office. I think they're just grasping at they're just throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what'll stick. That, that sounds about right. You know, and I, and I was just going to say, to me, it's not the age of the person, but it's, it's how long they've been in the office. Um, it's, right. it's, it's hard to believe you're going to get you know, fresh new ideas from someone that's had that office for 45 years already. Um, I, I don't know that if, they're, if they were going to do it, they would have probably already done it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, these, uh, and, and both sides do that, right? Like, you know, um, I'm up in Vermont, and, and uh, Senator Leahy's finally stepping down, but, you know, he was the longest, sir, you know, he was in the Senate for for decades, for, you know, half a century almost. So, you know, that is, um, in my, you know, one man's opinion, I think, I don't, I don't think you should, you need to be in the Senate for 50 years. Um, it, I don't think it, you know, even if you're doing a good job, well, you know, it's better to let somebody else uh, do a good job as well. There's plenty of people who can do that job. Yeah, and a lot of people tell you that they, we need the expertise of those long-term, long-serving folks, and I can sort of understand that point, but I would argue that the reason the founders made us have elections so frequently is because they didn't want that to happen, right? If we could, if we wanted one person to stay in there for 50 years, well, we we just have an election twice a century, right? We wouldn't have them every two years. Um, right. So I would argue you know, the, the Constitution kind of was set against that. No, I think you're. I think you're right on. And you know, it's um, the Senate in particular. I mean, the House too, right? But you know, the Senate in particular is, is uh, you know set up to reward being senior, right? So if you're, you know, if you want to be on the, you know, the, um, you know, the Senate Intelligence Committee, right? Like the person who is running that 
is the person who's been in the Senate the longest of the party that's kind of in power. So, um, you know, it's really, uh, it's set up to reward people for sticking around much longer than, you know, you, you think it, they would. Um, so, Okay, true story. Oh yeah, no, true yeah. true story. My senior undergrad, my when I was an undergrad in as a history major at the University of Kentucky in 1996, a then much younger Senator McConnell came to visit our senior seminar, right? And there's only like five of us in there. It's a pretty small group. So, and he just essentially hung out with us for an hour and just talked, right? So here, yeah. here's one. I'll never forget one of the things he said. He said, you know, when I was a, a new senator, he goes, you know, the seating is done by seniority in the Senate, right? And so when I got right. there, when he got there, he was in seat number 99. <laughs> Okay, all the way to the, all the way to the back, and the, and I'm just yeah. this is what he said. He said I looked around and I thought to myself, none of these people are ever going to die, and yes. uh, and that right. is, I guess it's still true. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, you know I, I don't know how many people kind of realize that that you know if you stick around longer. So I mean that's the argument for it, right? Like people are like, well, you know, if I send Leahy back, he's going to be the senior on every committee, and you know he'll be in charge. But I mean you got to weigh that against. Um, you know, true age, right? And so it's, it's just, it's so, there's a lot about the system that, uh, you know, could be improved. Um, but with the, with the partisan rancor, um, you know, now in this conflict between authoritarians and Democrats, um, I think, uh, you know, some of those structural issues are going to be, we're going to be hard pressed to fix. But that's the great thing, I think, about uh, VFRL and organizations like it is by getting more involved in that process, folks have an opportunity to leverage uh, and gain experience in that, and then perhaps that will help um, facilitate the arrival of that new generation that we're both looking for uh, to take over the reins of power. There have been some Gen Z candidates that have won at least primaries so far, so that's another encouraging step in that direction. Yeah, I think it's it's time for us to, you know, to lead. Right, like we, we fought these wars. Um, you know, we survived the housing crisis. We, uh, we have experience, um, and you know, we grew up with uh, you know, kind of seeing firsthand the, the modern technology that now runs everyone's lives. You know, when I when I was a kid, you know, it was we still had a landline, right? And, exactly. You know, we still sent postcards, and, and we've seen all of this stuff change. Um, I think we're ready. Our generation is ready, and you're starting to see some really good veterans running. Um, I was really happy that Pat Ryan up, up in New York uh, won his special election. Um, he's, a, uh, he's a great, great guy. Um, he's a Democrat, but he was a West Point guy. Um, and, you know, people like that, people like Seth Moulton, um, you know, people like Adam Kinzinger, who, you know, can kind of um, see the moment for what it is and are really able to uh, to realize that the fight's not over um, and, and citizenship has a duty and a responsibility that comes with it. I, I, it's encouraging that, um, it, it's encouraging to see some of these kids stepping up and, and running. That's great, and I hope that continues, uh, not just in this election, but in the future. Uh, any any other thoughts on this this year's election before we wrap up here? Um, covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I mean, we did cover. We've been it was a great conversation, but you know that we're we're really interested in, in playing some defense for some of these. You know, there are some great national security 
congressmen and uh, and women, uh, and especially women who are doing a fantastic job. Uh, we love uh, Elaine Luria down in Virginia. Um, Elaine's on the One Six Committee. She's a, a twenty year Navy veteran. Uh, she's on House Armed Services. She was, you know, sanctioned by Putin for supporting Ukraine. She's the real deal. She's a solid congresswoman. Um, you know, Abby Spanberger, kind of same story. Abby's uh, up in the Virginia suburbs. And then there are some kind of wild cards that are, you know, the, it looks like the race in Utah with Evan McMillan, who's running as an independent, um, is going to be is going to be close. And he's running against this guy Mike Lee, who uh, really is like a true believer. You know, actively participated in in sedition uh, and and looking to you know kind of overthrow the results of a of an election. So um, it's it's uh, you know it's every. In politics, what I've learned is everyone says, you know, this election is the most important one. Um, and I think 2024 is going to be the one for sort of all the marbles. But, you know, certainly, certainly, uh, you know, people need to get up, get out and vote. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. And I appreciate uh, all the work that everyone does in VFRL. Folks that are listening can find us uh, online. on the web. Just to launch a new uh, revised website, right? I just got a notice yeah. on that. Yes, sir. We've got some... Uh, great new website and um i'm pretty sure are we gonna link the podcast to the website i think we if we're if we're not planning on doing that we definitely should i think that'd be fantastic people could just comment download and, and take a listen um i think next uh the next one up is uh mike smith who's gonna talk a yep. uh, former uh fighter pilot gonna talk some uh some climate issues and and things like that that'll be a great conversation i'm excited for that one yeah i'm looking forward to it um, awesome, Jason. Thanks for having me, man. It was a lot of fun. All right. Thanks very much. Have a great day and take care. All right, Jason. Take care. Bye. Right, bye. Okay, that was Dr. Dan Barkoff, the president and founder of VFRL. We thank you for listening to the podcast. You can find us online at www.vfrl.org or on Twitter. And hope everyone has a great day. Take care.